0: I be yet see you, you, Ladies and gentlemen, faith like potatoes, this is going to be an incredible class. It's going to be incredible because it's going to address many real life issues. Specifically, we'll be balancing, I suppose, what you would call the dichotomy between faith or trust, betochen, and the concept of eshtadlos, the efforts that we have to make. I mean, at the end of the day, if God's in control, he calls the shots. So? <laughs> so then God's in control. Why, why do I have to bother doing anything? And if God's not in control, that is to say, if our efforts are what make the difference, well, then God's not in control. So which one is it? Now, we have dealt with the subject somewhat extensively. And we talked about the idea... Of preserving one's life, and how every one of us has to do everything that he or she can in order to save oneself from a mortal event. And today we're going to be contrasting that with earning a basic living. Yeah, you know, just like having your essential needs provided for. Now, as we're beginning, I see uh, we have Debbie on board and Paulette's here. Hello. Anybody who would like to ask a question or something meaningful to say, please, you can do so on the live chat. Anti-Semites need that apply. Please, if you're bored and have nothing better to do, please do it elsewhere. This is for people who want to learn about faith and trust in Hashem, be they Jewish or not. And this is something that can uplift and enrich and inspire you if you so choose gotta be open to it and lastly as I've said so many times this is not a TikTok thing do not expect a quick class and you certainly shouldn't expect success at inner transformation and at feeding or sustaining one's own conviction and spiritual bond with Hashem with God one should not expect to achieve that easily for all things valuable have to be worked for. Think of it as a marriage, a good friendship. Think of it as a person who's competing now in the Olympics. They worked for many, many, many hours, days, weeks, years, some of them decades. The realm of the spirit is no different. The key to unlock one's heart, and ultimately one's soul. Torah teaches, broadly speaking, and Hasidus highlights is through the mind. We study Torah, we absorb the ideas, we then contemplate, think about it. And that helps what we've learned percolate and then seep into the recesses of our heart from which vitality is pumped throughout the body, and when our heart's in the right place, and we're desirous of translating those feelings into action, that Hashem graces us with success. So we have elaborated on the principle that a person has to make every effort within the realm of nature to preserve his life. And now we're going to apply this very same principle to the other essential matters. You may be joining us for the first time. Um, if you're using the Kihot edition, I invite you to turn back. Well, first of all, we're on page 123 today. But I invite you to turn back to page 112, page 113. And that's because at the beginning of this chapter, the Master, Benu B'chaya, essentially delineated various categories. Matters, in which a person is supposed to rely on God Almighty and experience a sense of inner tranquility, bliss, because you're certain that Hashem is going to provide for you. First, Rabbeinu Baha'i divided it into two groups. He said, there is one chilek which deals with things in this world, Ha'ilam HaZeh, and then the second grouping was things that have to do with eternity or the bigger picture. We also then read how these were to be divided into seven distinct categories. The first category was things that affect you personally. <laughs> and then, After having said that these are things that affect HaGuf Bilvad, on page 113 we say, okay, let's talk about these various things. Let's talk about the first category that Betochen applies to. Which we could summarize as health, wellness, life, basic uh, sustenance or essential needs. And there, Rabbeinu Bahaya said that this pertains to chayav umoto, the existence or the very survival of a person's body, what we call life or death. And then he said this also applies to teref mizono, to the livelihood that provides basic provisions. And we talked about Malbusho, Rosso, we talked about clothing, shelter, health, illness. And we focused on Midot, on emotional wellness as well. We talked a lot about this previously. I don't want to focus, refocus on it. It would seem that Midot Tovot, which are usually understood to be fine character traits, are in the realm of our Avodat Hashem not considered to be a basic staple of our existence in a material or terrestrial sense. And despite the fact that that's the way it seems, clearly Rabbeinu B'chaya understood a lot more than we imagine. Although he's writing this a thousand years ago, and although the idea of emotional wellness was not really popular and talked about a thousand years ago and perhaps not even 150 years ago, Rabbeinu B'chaya talks about it. And he's obviously focused on character traits that directly influence and affect a person's emotional well-being. So we're talking about well-being today. Having your basic needs provided for. Rabbeinu B'chayi is very deliberate. He builds a structure, a skyscraper, painstakingly, piece by piece. There are no suppositions here. Everything has its veracity demonstrated or buttressed by Biblical precedent or inspired words of our sages. Mostly Biblical though. So when it comes to life and death, as we've learned in the previous two episodes, a person may say, hey, if I'm supposed to die, well then I'm supposed to die. If I'm supposed to live, well then I'm going to live. So, I can endanger myself. I can take all kinds of risks. Ultimately, it's in God's hands. Wrong, said Rabbeinu Bahaya. Totally wrong. And he proved it from a fascinating incident in, in the life of Samuel the prophet, Shmuel Hanovi. Where Shmuel Hanovi is a person who has mastered betochen, faith and trust in Hashem, and yet is reticent to respond to God's command because he sees danger on the horizon. And we talked a lot about this in the previous two episodes, about endangerment and about the anointment. Which brings us to today's class. And in today's, in today's class, we're going to continue moving from, I guess, the first segment, which is existential existence, life itself, like living or dying, to moving on to things which are essential for life. If a person doesn't have sustenance, doesn't manage to feed themselves, they're not going to be well. If a person is exposed to inclement weather and doesn't have proper clothing, they're going to be in big trouble. And even if you have a nice warm coat, living in a country like ours, you need to have a nice dry and warm shelter. You need to have sustenance. You need your emotional well-being. This is the question that we will address today. Be it resolved that God is the ultimate provider yet God desires that we make an effort. How much of an effort Do I need to invest every ounce of heart and mind and do this as skillfully, as wisely, and as effectively as possible? Or look, in the end, God provides. We've documented this idea that God doesn't want us to rely on miracles. I got that. So I'll go through the motions. But do I really need to expend every ounce of effort? Or can I just create the shell so that it looks like things are kind of natural, but I know that I didn't really invest every ounce of wherewithal. was not They weren't real efforts, they were half-hearted efforts. Here's a simple example, a lame metaphor, but a simple example. You know, in this country, To hire somebody from outside of the country, you have to demonstrate that you first looked in the ranks of the local citizenry and that you couldn't find what you needed. So for example, there are many, many housekeepers, people who come and help working women that come from the Philippines, very, very large amount here in Toronto. My family was blessed with a number of very fine women from the Philippines who helped my wife and I keep the house ship and raise our children, providing for basic material needs. So the interesting thing that we discovered is when you sponsor a nanny, as it's called, you first have to put an ad in the newspaper to see if anybody responds. And there are agencies that they, they master this kind of thing. So they put an ad in the newspaper. No, they don't put it in full color. And it isn't the most exciting looking ad. And unless somebody's really seeking out this kind of employment, they won't notice it. So are you really looking to have the spot filled by somebody local? The, the answer is no. And there isn't many people signing up for this kind of job. It so happens that most of these housekeepers are, are excellent. So you went through the motions. You proved, you have to send into the government agency, you show that here's a copy, is a clipping, there was an ad, you did make a request, nobody responded. Okay, the government grants you permission, you may now bring in a worker, somebody will be given license to earn a living from out of the country. Most of these people actually want to live in Canada, and eventually they do. That's their way in, that they're making a a gainful or important contribution to the people who are already living, working, breathing, and developing this country. Point in case is this. I should say case in point. You go through the motions you never expected anybody to respond. The government requires it. Okay, so now we've satisfied that requirement. And there are so many things like life like that where there are rules and you have to follow the rules and you should be lawful. Judaism expects us to be lawful. But you don't have to go beyond the call of duty. You don't have to, so to speak, be pious and extraordinary in your meticulous adherence to going beyond what's required you do what's required I did what I have to I move on when it comes to Yiddishkeit however we're expected to do far more than what we just have to Hashem wants to see that this is a labor of love that we're really invested in our Yiddishkeit it's not just perfunctory it's not just habitual really care about what we're doing all right that's about mitzvahs how about efforts to safeguard health I'm not talking about mortal situations how important is it to eat healthy we're anyway gonna die how important is it to exercise how important is it to work hard to make a living if anyway God provides And as we've learned before, 80% of the efforts brings 20% of the profit anyway. So just go through the motions. You know, punch my card, show up on time, leave on time. I don't really care about what I'm doing. You know, kind of the way things were in communist countries. People showed up for work, because you can get arrested if you didn't. They went through the motions, but they weren't motivated to work hard to invest themselves Should we be investing ourselves? Should we be thinking about the wisest or cleverest way to do this? Or whatever. Just throw it out there. You did something. Hashem will bless you. You had to make a keli. You made a keli. You made a vessel. Now when it came to preserving life, we learned very clearly that you need to go beyond the call of duty. You need to exhaust every possibility. Never mind if it is or isn't in your hands. That's what Hashem expects of you. Well, life and death, that's an actual mitzvah. That's a big deal. But what about things which are not, you know, life and death? Comes Rebbeinu B'chayim, and he says... If you're following along inside, page 123, he will now be addressing what they call in the Kiyat edition, the partnership between us and God. And just as we have said with regard to life. Which means the obligation to be concerned about preserving life. Distancing oneself from danger. And avoiding death. So too, same shall be said of the efforts made. The, if you will, means to obtain things like welfare. As in health, mazon, sustenance, like food, malbushandira. Now I want to share with you the words of the commentary which we know as Neder Bakodesh. The Neder Bakodesh says, b'chayim, life. Now, I've already articulated some of this, but you know, I'm a textual guy, I like to read it from inside. So the Neder Bakodesh says, Ma The author refers here to what he's mentioned previously. hamaymin that the believer, the person who has translated his faith into trust. He is nonetheless obligated, we learned, litboa sibot, to seek out. To make real serious efforts, Lehi Asakana, to save himself from danger. And we see the veracity of this claim in Chuva Tashem is Barak Hanavi, where Samuel the prophet is reticent to carry out a mission given to him by God. Because there's danger on the horizon. And God doesn't say, Shemuel, I told you to go. He says to him, yes. Good point. Here's how you should do what I asked you to do. Here's how you'll avoid danger and preserve your life. We learned in his that a person is obligated. And here the cites the example that rabbeinu B'chai brought which is so overwhelmingly obvious. He says uh, in order to stay alive you have to Eat and drink. To be accurate, you have to drink more than you have to eat. But you need both. You need to be hydrated and sated. Sustained. So he says, can a person just sit there? Should God want to keep me alive? No problem, God. Open my mouth and feed me. Hydrate me. I prefer, you know, if you could do it wirelessly so I don't have to open my mouth, just like, you know, by osmosis. Help me absorb some moisture. Just, you know, like, sustain me. Give me a quick download. Yeah, I can't bother with the whole digestion thing. It's, it's time-consuming. I'm on Netflix. I don't have time for that, God. I'm busy. Or maybe I'm on that metaverse. I'm wearing this big thing around my head. I can't eat anything. So I'm having my fun and doing whatever I want. If God wants to feed me, let him feed me. And if I die of starvation, uh, what do you want? Clearly, I was supposed to die. Nobody in their right mind will ever suggest such a thing. It is abundantly idiotic, beyond the pale. Well, that is precisely why Rabbeinu B'chai uses that example, because it's something which is overwhelmingly obvious. And the Nedr Bar has thus quoted both a biblical source and the logic that anybody with an IQ of minus 10 would be able to relate to. Yeah, the believer has to eat. Clearly, Samuel was worried about life. He had to avoid danger. So the question now is, do we say the same thing about every other area of personal welfare? Or, at this point, you go through the motions, Leave the rest in Hashem's hands. He's doing it anyway. Keinoimar Soto, where we say Now the word khiov in Hebrew means obligation. Not what I might choose to do, but what am I actually obligated to do? Obligations aren't electives. It's not, you know, you, you may if you wish. It's not an elective. You may, if you wish to eat, you may eat. Of course, you may not eat. Well, you may not eat, but that would be a sin. You would be violating your obligation. Am I obligated to eat sweets and things bad for me? No, I'm probably obligated to avoid them, actually. And then the question is, how far does that obligation go? Is everybody who eats too much violating this? Or are people who don't eat well violating this? That's a good question. These are the kinds of discussions or thoughts we can have when we read the material. The point is, we discuss chiyuv. Now, the pas lechem, on the word chiyuv, he says, we're not talking about whether one is permitted It'll make me feel better if I invest every ounce of wherewithal. If I create the greatest strategy on the planet for making a lot of money because I want to be rich. Hey, you know, your strategy may not work. Even if it's a perfect strategy, there are things on the offing that nobody could be aware of. Well, true, but I still want to do the very best I can or I'm obligated to do the best I can. Big difference. Rabbeinu B'chaya says, obligated. As the Paslechem explains his words, Shaha Adam mechuyav letevoya. in other words, and he uses interesting verbiage, lidrosh Ulvakesh. These are words which are used to describe a person who investigates, who goes beyond what is overt or obvious. In modern Hebrew, a, a dorish is a detective. When a person studies Torah, in Torah Hebrew, Lidrosh means to dwell, to look deeply, to investigate. Vakish is to seek or, or to look for, you know, like somebody who lost something. This is a silly story they tell about a person who's standing under the spotlights, the floodlights in the parking lot. And he's looking and looking. And somebody comes over. And he says, good evening, sir. Can I help you? He says, yeah, I lost my keys. I lost my keys. I'm just looking for my keys so I can get back into my car. He says, oh, did you lose him here? He says, no, I, I actually lost them on the other end of the parking lot, but it's lit up over here. That's not called doing your best. In fact, that's downright stupid. Unfortunately, when it comes to spirituality, that's what a lot of people do. They lose themselves, and they're looking elsewhere. Hey, you lost yourself, you're looking for God, as they say, go home, look inside yourself. You're going where things seem to be illuminated, but that's not where you lost it. Anyway. Point being that the idea of levakish means to really seek it out. I'm sure you must have experienced losing something important. Maybe like your keys. You didn't take a cursory look and say, Well, I can't find them. Did you look? Well, I looked. If God wants me to find them, I'll find them. Please. God wants you to find them. You need to do your best. Precisely, says the paslechem. That's what we speak of in reference to seabot means to briot, health, muzen, sustenance, etc. So this is something we all need to do. Well, when we're looking for mazon food, Malbush, an appropriate wardrobe. Dira, shelter, place to live by the standards of living. Midotovot. We've talked about this. I don't want to revisit. This is a complicated subject that we've already analyzed in detail. Why the idea of Midotovot is included there. For brevity's sake, we'll just, again, emphasize emotional wellness. Includes things like just being humble, satisfied, happy with what you got. So a person has to seek these things out. Can't you say, if God wants me to be happy, well-disposed, and adjusted, hey, he's going to well disposed and adjust me. What about somebody who has an issue, a mental health challenge? It isn't always something we can solve on our own. And sometimes, lots of therapy isn't going to work either. I'm not an advocate for pharmacology, unnecessarily. But sometimes, you need medication. You need a cane to walk if your leg is broken. If whatever it is in your emotional makeup is for some reason not functioning right, well, you may need into crutches. A person shouldn't say, well, if God expects me to function, He needs to lighten things up for me. He shouldn't have given me these challenges of depression, sadness, inadequacy, lack of confidence. No, work on those things. You're obligated to. Lidrosh, ulavakesh, to seek it out, to work really hard, to be able to achieve it. And that takes us into the idea of the hard work we do, the efforts that we are going to make necessarily have to come along with what we call our faith in Hashem. La to stay away from the things that will get in the way of it. Im beirur emunasei, along with maintaining clarity of conviction I'm talking of faith I'm talking knowing that God is the ultimate arbiter of everything that's what we believe, he's always in control well if he's always in control why am I doing these things and the answer is well before I get to the answer let's re-emphasize the question (inaudible) ki hasibot ein mo'ilot auto bezeklum Because my activities, my means are not necessarily going to lead to an end. They don't even contribute. Well, for heaven's sake, if they don't even contribute, why am I doing it? If everything is only by decree, by issue from God, what he ordains, why am I doing this? The answer is because that's what I'm supposed to do. That's a big claim. You're probably saying, Rabbi Bechaya, I hope you can demonstrate the veracity of that. I mean, it doesn't really make any sense. You're right. It doesn't make that much sense. It's easy for a person to question why. Something seems like I guess you could say somewhat off here. Patience. But first, before we go on to Rabbi Bahaya's proof, let's just flesh in his claim. So moving on, Imber Munosay says the Paslechem. This is what Rabbi Bahaya means to say. He's not contradicting himself. What he means to say is, Af she'amunosay Despite the fact that he has crystal clear conviction. The means that I'm invested in are not effective. Nonetheless, he is under obligation to engender the means. Make it happen. It's intense. You know, the the To'vah puts it even more clearly. Listen to this. The To'vah Levonan says, Although his faith and conviction is clear. Clear conviction means that you can't do this. Hakol Zerat habora—it's all by decree of the Creator. Says the Tevul in despite believing this, chayav. And here the Tevul goes out on a limb, chayav lahadir—he has to be most meticulous. He is obligated to be meticulous looking for good, effective means. Not to say, well, I heard this is healthy. Did you do the research? Did you speak to a health professional? Well, you know, whatever. Somebody on Facebook said it was a good idea. That's not good enough. (laughs) You have an obligation. Allow me to explain, just, just to make it clear. Because the verbiage, that he uses, the Teva uses, is actually stunning. When it comes to performance of mitzvot, mitzvot are acts of holiness, things we were commanded by God to perform in order to nurture, to build and develop a meaningful relationship with the Creator Himself. How is that possible? Well, it's on His terms. God says, do these things, and that forges our connection. So, a person could do a mitzvah, just minimally. And then a person can be mahader. A person can do the mitzvah in what freely translates as meticulous, but organically the word means to beautify. To beautify the mitzvah means I'm not just going to satisfy kind of the base opening level of obligation I want to go beyond the call of duty so here's an example of Hidr Mitzvah a person could purchase a mezuzah it's kosher it's not well written clearly whoever wrote this mezuzah is just kind of starting his writing career it's sloppy but it covers the basics. There are a lot of things that can go wrong in these holy artifacts. They have to be done painstakingly. But it's not a beautiful mezuzah. It's not the highest quality parchment. It's okay. It's not the nicest of writing. It's decent. It satisfies the requirements. Let's say that costs 50 or $60. And then a person says, "No, no, no. I want to have a, a larger mezuzah. You're not required by halakha to have a larger mezuzah. You can have a smaller mezuzah. I want a larger mezuzah, he says. And I want it to be written in the most beautiful way. Well, that's going to cost you. That could set you back $150, $175, $200. So <laughs> he asked me the obvious question. What's wrong with this guy? You can, fi- you can use a mezuzah that costs 60 bucks, 70 bucks. And instead, he's spending like $200 on a mezuzah. What's he doing? What's the answer? Hidr. He wants to do the mitzvah beautifully. Some people can't relate when I talk about mitzvahs and hidr. So I talk about like clothes. You know, there's, there's the knockoff. Or no name. Not very beautiful. Not particularly well made. Certainly not stylish. It covers the subject. You're clothed. <laughs> As they say here, the private parts are covered. And you're warm. Yeah, but I'm not going Come on, seriously? I, I want to wear an, a nice suit. I want to wear a, a nice dress. person says, I, I want to dress well. I feel good when I'm wearing something nice. Well, it's not necessary. You didn't need it. After that, I once hear a girl said, Oh, I'm dying for those Louboutins. It's like a fancy shoe. Really? What, 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 does it help you walk better? Walk. I could barely walk in them. Then what, what is the point? Oh, this, they look so good. I feel so good. Okay. So people somehow understand about dressing well and beautifully. You're to have to bear minimum food but they want nice food. You can have a very plain home. It can shelter you from bad weather, keep you safe from criminals. How many of us live in a home that we need? Sometimes I think the homes we live in, in antiquity, a billionaire didn't have electricity, running water, toilet facilities. <laughs> we have such luxury today. Do we need those things? Well, we've gotten used to it. So you call a standard of living. Most of us don't think of a standard of living as beaver or living out in the wild. Most of us want to live nicely. That's fine. It's fine. Do mitzvahs nicely too, though. Why is it that when it comes to clothing, we want the best? When it comes to food, we want the finest. When it comes to a mitzvah, it'll do. Funny enough, when it comes to the case of the mezuzah, which isn't a mitzvah at all, gold, silver, jewel-encrusted, or other... Artsy, beautiful kinds of materials. You don't need it. you can wrap a mezuzah in plain paper. Plastic. Lucite. No, Rabbi, I have to have a nice mezuzah. I cringe. A nice mezuzah? <laughs> a nice mezuzah case or a nice mezuzah? Why is it that we're so willing to spend money on a mezuzah case, which satisfies no specific halachic requirements, but kind of satisfied with the bare basic minimum. You understand what I'm talking about? I mean, this is really human nature. I don't mean to criticize anybody other than myself, actually. We all do this. We all have our shtick, the things we harp on, focus on. I'm trying to clarify the word mahadir. Mahader means to do more than the bare minimum. Not just to put that one-liner into the newspaper. By the way, one-line advertisements can be very effective. Try this. Put a one-line advertisement. No graphics. Don't pay for the front page. Use the back page. Just write, anybody who comes to my house at this time will receive $500 free gift, no strings attached. And you'll see how many people suddenly know about it. You want it to be more effective? Make it a $1,000 gift. How'd they find out about it? Somehow they found out about it. Because word of mouth is still the best form of advertisement. Then somebody notices. But when you put an advertisement, something that nobody really is interested in, or certainly they don't need, you have to make it seem as if they're interested or need it. That's the art called marketing. So when it comes to making my efforts, is this just like marketing? Do I have to just go through, you know, the basics? Leave the frills off? Do what I did? I put the ad in? And now if Hashem wants to give me Parnassa, He gives me Parnassa. I said, I'm available. I'm selling my wares. I have a good product. I put a one-liner. A one-liner. In the back of the newspaper. Does anybody still read those things? I put it out. I use the cheapest. Why should I spend money? Why waste money on trying to market a product? I got a good product. Despite the fact that I might use a very effective marketing strategy, it may fail. It's all in Hashem's sense. I use the biggest marketing geniuses, but how was I supposed to know that this particular word that was used was going to be associated with a terribly negative event that took place after we placed the ads. And nobody wants to buy it anymore. How was I supposed to know? You weren't. You were supposed to do your best. I did? Okay. Then you leave it in Hashem's hands. But do your best. And that's the point that the Toiv of makes. Chayiv lahander. It's really a very powerful point. Now most people don't believe that much. They actually think that the efforts they make do make a difference. It's not true. Rabbeinu Bechaya has taught us time and again that in fact, it's not the case, and yet we still have to give it our best. That's the point he's making here. Now he's going to illustrate this fascinating balance, the, the interplay of being able to synergize the tension between the seeming opposites of the crystal clear conviction, the and the blissful trust that I know Hashem does everything. And at the same time, I have to do my best. Hey, if I'm not really effective, why? So Rabina Bechaya is going to illustrate this. And apply it to the idea of Parnosa. Prosperity or the efforts we have to make to make a living he opens with a detailed description of farming, agriculture. He really gets into the details. And then after detailing the agriculture, he says, and same applies to the various other vocations and different methods that enable us to provide our needs and to achieve our aims or goals. So the obvious question is why is it that we emphasize agriculture? Why is farming the perfect paradigm of faith? Well that's what we're about to find out. Faith like potatoes. So let's head out into the farms. So this is something we can all understand. We can understand that when the farmer wants to produce crops, what's he have to do? Well, the first thing he he is (laughs) is, if he doesn't, he doesn't plow the ground. If he doesn't plant the seeds, nothing's going to happen. And just because he plowed or planted doesn't mean things are going to grow. There's follow-up. Now it has to be cleared or cleaned of thorns or thistles. Okay, in modern English we call this weeding why do you need to weed things like that well simple because the ground is able to give nutrients for the crops but if the crops aren't getting the nutrients instead the weeds the thorns the extraneous vegetation is draining the ground of its nutrients who loses that's right the crops and there's only so much nutrient vested by god in the soil so we're going to fertilize. It stinks. But it makes for good crops. We're going to have fertile ground. We may allow certain fields. To lie fallow. So that they have. Sometimes a year or even two. To regenerate themselves. Because such is the nature. Hashem ordains that the entire land of Israel. Be left fallow. Every seven years. And despite this idea called Shemitah, farmers would often alternate which field they used so as to get a greater quality out of the ground instead of a diminished quality, but perhaps greater quantity. So after planting and after removing the foreign or offensive vegetation, there's the actual, you know, the Lazara, the planting, and then the lahashkoisa. After you plow, remove the foreign vegetation, clear it, then plant it, then you need to water it. Now, this is a little odd. It reads, it definitely reads a little odd. If you're following along in the Kiyot edition, you'll see it in, um, follow along in the Hebrew. It's a, it's it's a little bit of a funny read. It says, Ula Hashkosa, and he must water it or irrigate it if water becomes available. What do you mean, if water becomes available? That's, that's your job, man. That's your, go find the water. So it's uh, fascinating here, but the commentaries, they, they, they're not certain that this is accurate. They feel that uh, a word may have been left out. The Manoia chalavavai suggests that somehow a word was omitted from the text it should have read according to the minhalavavus lahashkai so yizdamnu to irrigate if it doesn't get watered what well, if it doesn't get watered who's going to do that god of course that is to say imain hageshem if there is no rain because if there's rain then we have mayim min hashamayim that's water from heaven but what if there is no rain ah if there's no rain then we have to do our part in bringing hydration to the crops lashgoy sevaraglov you got to do it with your own two feet so to speak transport the water there kigan hayarok as quoting Scriptural prose, like the garden, the vegetable garden. The neder Bakrdesh, pardon me, the Marpil Nefesh goes out even more in a limb. And he says, He says that according to other versions, it should read, not in la mayim, but in is. yizdamnulay If rains, don't show up. It doesn't always rain. He can't change the weather. And after doing all those things, what is the farmer then supposed to do? Ah, then. Then he's supposed to place his trust in Hashem. Then he places his blissful reliance on God. Lafrisa. That Hashem will make these crops blossom forth, multiply, and to save it from some translator says mishaps or disasters. The paslechem says, if you want an accurate kind of description, take a look in the book of Deuteronomy. If you look in chapter twenty-eight. Verse 22, the Torah is talking about some pretty horrible stuff that will come our way if we don't behave, if we don't listen to Hashem. So, the expression in the Torah is God will smite you with blistering and searing temperature, raging fever, shachefes, kadachas, dalekes, b'charchor, the cherif. is another disease, a disease that, that penetrates the body. Who knows? The sword, violence. And then he says, I'm not a farmer, but I study a little Chumash. So Rashi says, and the Metsudah Khomesh translates it as wind blight. And so in the Jastro, he translates it as blast. Ruach Kodim, an easterly wind, scorched by a blistering easterly wind. A yurokoin is like yellowing, as in greenish yellowing, because yaruk is green. Rashi says that means Yoyvesh It means there is a withering of the crops. Whereas the crops turn pale. When they turn a, a yellowish green. You know, like yellow fever, you turn green. So you got to pray. You got to trust. You can plant. You can water. You can have done everything in your power. No rain. You brought water. And then famine hits. Things can go wrong. But a person trusts in Hashem. He trusts that Tirbet Vuasa, he trusts that the crops will multiply. There'll be a lot of them. And that the Creator will bless those crops. So clearly, if you want to have crops, what do you need to do? You need a plant. You need to do your part. Rabbeinu Yankee Emden has a fascinating comment here. He says, you know, this isn't Rabbeinu B'chai's idea. It's, um, it's scriptural. This is found in the book of Proverbs. Listen to this. Proverbs chapter 20 verse 4. A person who is lazy due to winter. Rashi says it's cold outside. I'd rather stay home. Keep warm. Drink hot chocolate. You know, who wants to go out there? So Yeshev etzel the person sits lazy. doesn't do his work. As the Metsudah, David puts it, me sibat tzinat due to the frigid weather. So Le'achrash, he says, are you kidding? You want me to go out there and plow in this weather? I'm not doing that. So he's lazy. Then what happens? And then, v'sho'al b'kotzer v'o'yin. It comes the harvest season. He's like, where's my harvest? There's no harvest. There's no harvest, says the Mitzvot David. He's looking, he's asking about crops. Ain't everybody else has got crops. He's got no crops. Why? K'ilay It didn't grow. Why didn't this field grow? Ha'yobo'ley He didn't work the field. It didn't grow. He didn't make the efforts. He got nothing. Rabbeinu Yoina in his commentary says King Solomon is not talking about agriculture per se. The agriculture that's mentioned here is but a frame, a metaphor. It's a a euphemism for the efforts we have to make in life. Midat Hazrizot. He speaks about it's called in English alacrity. Don't be lazy. It's always the path of least resistance. Be industrious. A person could say it's cold. It's hot. A person will say you know what? Let, let the weather get a little better. I'll do this eventually. Yeah, it never happens. You never really find what you lost because you needed to work that day. An example of this is a person who doesn't plow because it's winter. He says, "But That's when you plow. Obviously, we're talking about Israel, the Middle East. This is how it is there. It's different a little in the country like this. So, he stays away, he avoids the, the work he has to do because of the weather. And al Cain, he comes and he says, uh, where's, where's what I'm looking for? Now Rashi says this is also about wisdom. Not only is it a, not only about agriculture, Not only is it incorporative of every effort a person must make to make a living, whether you are a farmer or in a startup, but even when it comes to wisdom. If you don't make the effort, if you don't work hard at learning and mastering concepts, you won't know. Rabbeinu Yena follows these lines that are charted by Rashi and he says this is precisely what our sages meant in the Mishnah in Pirkei Avot. In chapter 2 in Mishnah 6 it says, a person shouldn't say when things free up, I'll study some Torah. Yeah I know it's important to study Torah. I will get to it. Maybe you'll never really have time. The commentaries on the Mishnah say that's matter-of-fact. You won't have time. You just never get to it. It's like the people who delay all the important things in life for when they retire. Never happens that way. Somehow it never quite works out in that fashion. So, this isn't Rabbeinu Bachai's idea per se. The, t- the scripture talks about this. But Rabbeinu B'chai is the first one to cast that side by side with the concept of Amuna and trust. And he says, yeah, you can trust Hashem. You still have to make all the efforts. But why did he use the example of farming? It seems that Rabbeinke of Emden felt that's because of this, verb's, verb in, in this verse in Proverbs. But I'm going to suggest something very different to you. And once we get to it, it'll become the thrust of the rest of, of today's class. But first, I want to go through some of the details. You know, I, I'm, I'm a stickler to uh, words, and we have to read. This is a book we're learning, studying from the words, from what, what Rebbeinah Bahaya wrote, or at least from the faithful translation. So why does he say that there's going to be tirbe, an increase or a large volume of produce, and then via and then it'll get blessed. It's like people think kosher food is food that's blessed. So I'll get a rabbi to bless it for you. Yeah, it doesn't work like that. Kiddush means to bless something, and <laughs> the food is or isn't kosher. What does it mean via So the pas says that's a good question, and it does seem to be redundant. In fact, superfluous. Like what? What, 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 what is this verbiage? What? What is Rabbi Nachaya saying? And he says that if you want to understand what Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar is saying, you need to take a look in Mesechet Tanit. And there in Mesechet Tanit... What are you asking, Sam? What's the title of the book that we are reading from? The title is... The book is called Chovat Halavavot, Obligations or Duties of the Heart. And we are studying from the fourth chapter, which is called Shar Habitoch and the Gate of Trust. Of, of the book, this chapter which has many chapters and it's a, it's a book in itself, is considered to be um, the most widely read and the most foundational. So that's, that's what we're studying. All right. I, uh, I refer, very good. Yeah, very good, Shonil Sha'ar series, excellent. <laughs> I refer Sam back to the first, the very first episode of the series where he introduced the series and explained what it's all about. So the Gemara says like this. The Gemara in Mesechet Tanit on page 8, side B. The Gemara is talking about bringing home the harvest. You know, and a person being grateful to Hashem. We're going to talk about that. Attitude of gratitude. That's, that's going to be our next class. But the Gemara says like this. A rabbis learned. Hanichnas lamud a person who enters to weigh, measure, size up the harvest. Omer, he should say, before he begins, Dear God, I plead with you. May it be your will. That you send blessing in our handiwork. It's a very funny blessing. It, it's already grown. It's already cut. We're making this blessing. His chalamud. If he begins to actually weigh and measure, sizing up the harvest, Omer, he says, a, ble- a blessing. Baruch, and the way the verbiage of a bracha goes, Baruch atah Hashem, kenu Melech Olam, Blessed Lord, Master of the Universe. Hasholeach bracha bikri. Who sends fourth blessing into the harvest what happens if he measured he knows how much he has and then he says I want to make a bracha now I'm going to pray that it should be blessed that's a pointless a pointless prayer but are you going to pray for what happened already what are you praying for you pray for what's going to happen Very strange statement the Gemara seems to be making. So there are those who believe that this is to be understood as a thanksgiving to Hashem. But the ritva is clear and he says, This blessing is not a thanks. It's a request. It's a bakosha. That this, before it's measured, what, do you expect magic to happen? Before it's measured, it's somehow going to increase? Seems that way when it comes to crops. Once it's measured, that's it. But before everybody knows, pray away. And the Ritva proves the veracity of his opinion because he says, "In if not Why would you make this blessing? After you finish measuring, in other words, if we're talking about a futuristic blessing, you know, maybe these crops shouldn't rot, or I should have an opportunity to sell them for a a good price, what's the difference before or after you measure it? Clearly there's a difference. The Roshas points out that this is, that this is actually ruled In halachic terms, by the Rambam, by Maimonides himself. In chapter 10 of the Laws of Brachot, which is part of the second book of Mishnah Torah, which is called the Book of Love, because it details all the various loving things we do to nurture and develop our relationship with the Creator. One of them is making blessings. Being mindful of the fact that it is God alone who provides for us and that we recite a prayer formula. Some of them are blessings for the future, and some are blessings of acknowledgment for the past. The Rambam quotes this seemingly challenging to understand Gemara in halachic terms. Ha'holach lamod grono somebody who goes to measure his harvest. of anachashem shetishlach bracha may God send success, blessing in my handiwork. He's chalamut. He's actually now performing the act of sizing up, measuring the harvest? Omer, Baruch HaSholech Bakri, Bracha Bakrize. Zeh? V'achakach, Bikesh, Rachamim, Shov. But if it's after it's measured, then he's asking, Rachamim, mercy, for the future. That's a wasted, pointless prayer. Clearly, Rambam and Ritva held that the Bracha can still be given even after the harvest as long as as it hasn't yet been measured. It's what the Gemara calls until the eye has, so to speak, taken it in, until it's been documented, extraordinary things can still happen. And what exactly this means and how precisely it plays out is the subject for a different lecture that we'll give in someday with God's help. But it is very clear that This is a prayer for the future. And this, says the Paslachim, must be what Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar was alluding to when he speaks about this business of farming. He says, It would not be appropriate to leave the ground leave an empty field, no plowing, no planting, no work, and then say, I place my hope, trust, and certainty in Hashem. God will provide. You never heard of things growing themselves? If God wants wheat to grow, it'll grow. He doesn't, he doesn't. Simple as that. The ground will grow, although it was never planted. Okay, so this is a, a very, very graphic example, perhaps. A very obvious example of how the efforts we make are absolutely critical and result in the growth. No, 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 not so fast. This is really about faith. The farmer farms with faith because when he plants and does his work, Yiftach al then he places his trust in Hashem. What does that mean? And then he goes on to say, and so it is with their other business. Fakim craftspeople, ashirah, ashiros, people who are involved, merchants involved in business, people who professionals charge for their time. You have to go out there and do what you can. Light the world on fire. As they say. Strap up your sneakers. Get out there and run. Do everything you can to make a living. <inaudible> Alongside with crystal clear conviction in God. parnasa <inaudible> is in his hands. My efforts will not bring the success. It's all bit of shusi. It's all in his dominion. And furthermore. <inaudible> Hashem is the guarantor. Hashem is the guarantor. The says. As per the words of King David in the end of Psalms, Psalm 136, we say this every single day. lechem Sorry, we don't say it every day, every Shabbos. He who gives blechem to all flesh. And we talked about this in one of the early episodes. Rebbe Nebuchadnezzar discussed how every single form of life gets exactly the sustenance it needs. And this is a key element in the concept of Rabbeinu B'chayi's idea of trust. It's a fundamental principle. Hashem guarantees every living being will receive his or her allotment of sustenance. They will all be given what they need. God's guarantee. God is going to bring fruition, so to speak. He'll give you what you need. With whatever means he chooses. Despite the fact that it's so critically important for you to make every effort, don't think. hasiba, Oi Sazi Kehu Your efforts will neither add nor subtract from the bottom line. Zero. I mean, you talk about a paradox. This is the ultimate paradox. Everything we do, we do because we have to. It is not what brings the results. Yes, you have to work hard. Because Hashem says so. Yes, you have to work wisely, smart. Because Hashem says so. You have to be creative, you have to be swift, you have to be able to think on your feet, react to situations to the best of your ability. And then everything's in Hashem's hands and you have that crystal clear conviction as you're making all these efforts. It's a paradox. It's like the people in communism, they didn't bother working, why should they? Everything was subpar, except for the areas that was important. For example, to the Soviet Union, like nuclear development. Well, everybody was the same, except some a little more the same. If you're involved in government, well, that's another story. Then you got yourself a cottage and all kinds of perks. Maybe it was cash. Maybe it wasn't cash. So you got commodities instead of cash, same thing. It's actually laughable. The communist system, which is based on altruism and everybody sharing equally, is a dismal failure. And the only areas in which it didn't fail is because it was capitalist. They laughed at the bourgeois and they did exactly the same thing. It was nuclear physicists that they needed to work hard to create the nuclear bombs. They got rewarded. They weren't the same as everybody else. Decades of virtually no ingenuity. Very little creativity. Why? Because people needed to be motivated. And the more they're motivated to know that they will gain from what they do, the harder they work. And here we have this incredible paradox. Where a yin is supposed to be absolutely certain that whatever he does is mandated. But that's not what it's about. It comes from Hashem Yisbaruch. And you have to be mahad there. Now, the truth is, who are we fooling? Very few of us attain success in the B'Tochin arena. Deep down, we think to ourselves, yeah, yeah, my work does make the difference. There's a silly story they tell, but it's probably not so silly, of a Model T Ford or whatever it was, the first automobile rolling into the shtetl one day. And all the farmers and simple people came, and they couldn't, couldn't believe what their eyes were seeing. A magic wagon. So they said, where's the horse? They said, no, 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 no horse. This, this is combustion. This is technology. And the driver explained how an engine works and how it creates combustion, and, and this is, creates energy and how you harness the horsepower. And the story is told that after he drives out of town, one farmer... One peasant turns to the other and he says, so, uh, so what do you say? It's pretty incredible, eh? He says to him, yeah, it's pretty incredible. He said, but between me and you, in the engine, there's a little horse. Most of us are like that peasant the Almighty God powers everything and the Almighty God gives us everything and whatever Hashem wants will be and whatever He doesn't want won't be and we know that we can make so many efforts nothing happens hardly make efforts sometimes in an area or an area where we made all the effort somewhere else and this area we didn't put any neglected, didn't give it any attention and that's where all the success came from we know it, we talk about it we convince ourselves and we try to convince everybody else that we believe it we try to convince ourselves we believe it and deep down we're saying yeah, but like you know my hard work is going to bring home the bacon they give me. You know what I'm saying. So this is, this is HaShem. And part of, part of our service to HaShem is to be certain of this, and at the same time, not allow it to diminish the efforts that we make because they're halakhically or from a Torah perspective mandated. Now, we're going to devote the, the last part of today's episode to better understanding the, the agricultural metaphor. The faith-like potatoes. So, our journey is going to begin. This is our final journey for today. Our journey is going to begin in Mesechet Shabbat. Many of the commentaries point... To this, to this statement that's made in the Gemara. And to be sure, it's a, it's, a, it's a very powerful statement that the Gemara makes. But when we think about it carefully, I think it's going to provoke a very big question mark before it gives us the answer. So farming and faith, they go hand in hand, eh? Yeah, that's so it seems. So the Gemara is found in Masechat Shabbat. On page thirty-one, it's a it's a drasha. It's an it's an exposition on a fascinating verse, which is found in the book of Isaiah. Yeshayahu Hanavi, speaking to us in the thirty-third chapter, he describes a lot of terrible things that are going to be happening. He talks about. Um, the Jewish people whose enemies will be vanquished. And then he's going to turn to us and say, hey guys, you're in for some rough times. But before describing the destruction that is fated for the Jewish people, unless they do some very big tshuva. The prophet Isaiah, Yishayahu Hanavi reminds everyone who will listen. and specifically addresses those who dwell in Sion. And he says, V'hoyo emunat i'techa chosin. The faithfulness of your times, which means maintaining faith in every time, will be the shield or chosen yeshuot the strength or shield of salvation. In other words, this will be a permanent source of strength that will carry us through the most difficult of times that will save us. this wisdom and knowledge, yirat Hashem, the reverence and respect for Hashem, He, O that is the storehouse or the storehouse of strength. In different words, in the same way that a storehouse is used to preserve the produce, the Mepharshim explain that Yerat Hashem, that the reverence, the awe that we have for God will preserve our strength our salvation, and our knowledge. Okay? Yeshayahu Navi said it. It is so. The Gemara now expounds upon this. The Gemara shares a fascinating insight. The Gemara says that really what we're being told about is that the strength, the Jewish people's strength, comes from our Torah study. And the Gemara says, Omer Eshlakesh, Reish Lokesh taught, what is the deeper meaning of this verse? What does it really mean? And Reish Lakish explains that this alludes to the six orders of Mishnah. The law, the oral Torah, the Mishnah, is divided into six orders. How so? So now Rish Lakish interprets each word of this verse as referring to a different order of Mishnah. For example, the first order of Mishnah is called Zeraim, or agriculture, and it deals with all kinds of laws of how we farm and tithe. The second is called Moed, which means appointed time. Things like Shabbat. And the festivals. So the Shlokish says, Emunas. Emunas means your faith, the faith. Zeid This refers to the order which is called Zraim. Why does faith refer to the order called agriculture? Literally seeds. So Rashi says. I'll tell you why. Because Hashem has to trust you. You have to be trustworthy. <inaudible> A person is trusted. <inaudible> that he will separate and give appropriate tithes. Nobody's going to come and check up. Nobody's going to measure your harvest to see if you give the right amount. So there's an amount of trustworthiness that has to accompany the fulfillment of this order of Mishnah. That's what Rashi says. The Tosfos says something very different. bi b'Yerushalmi in the Jerusalem tradition or Jerusalem Talmud it says that's because farming and faith go hand in hand. Shemaimin bechei ho'ilomim that a person plants and he trusts in God now I have to tell you that we don't know of such a Yerushalmi the Jerusalem Talmud as we have it at least the version we have doesn't have anything like this but there is such a teaching from our sages and it's found in the Medrash Rabba on Parshat Naso, chapter 13 and I'll take you there in a minute first I want to point out something very very interesting the Pnei Shlomo, which is a book on, of, of tamuric exorcists, ex- explanation on the, it's really a super commentary, commentaries on Rashi and Tosfos. The Pnei Shlomo, written by the author of the Kitzel Shulchan Aruch, talking 19th century. The Pnei Shlomo says that the difference between Rashi and Tosfos is what Rashi's words would apply only to farming in Israel, because only in Israel we have tithes. But what Tosfo says applies universally. That when a person plants he believes or trusts in Hashem and then he plants. In other words that the planting is an act of faith. It's an act of faith. Why is planting an act of faith? A, the ground grows. You put seeds in the ground, they grow. It's a miracle. It's an act of faith, more so than anything else. So the Iyam, Iyam was the Magid of Slonim, like in the late 18th century, mid to late 18th century. The Iyam, who was a master of exposition of Agaric portions of the Gemara, he says that planting is a lot like faith. Faith like potatoes. Why? I'm glad you asked. He said that's because when a person puts a seed in the ground, the seed rots. Now if you were to look only at that moment, you look at a seed, the seed was there. It's planted in the ground, now it's gone. You see, what was the point? Took a perfectly good seed and you destroyed it. Would you tell the person, patience, patience, it looks like that now. You're zeroing in on something you only see now, you don't see the whole picture. Right now you see destruction. Right now you see something dissolving. You see something breaking, smashing, falling apart, no longer extant. Ah, but you'll see. In the end, something wonderful is gonna happen. And that's the paradigm of farming. You lose the seed you gain the harvest. So he says, this is like faith. A person could be in a difficult time, and he or she has to know. Don't get bogged down. Don't get demoralized. Don't get overwhelmed by the challenge of the moment. This is just a way for Hashem to enable greater growth later. I've seen it around uh, lately. I think they say it in the name of Nachron of Breslov. I don't know where it's from. Sometimes God breaks your heart to fix your soul. Easy to say when things aren't broken. So, so planting is an act of faith because you put the seed in the ground. But we have like thousands of years of experience and data. We put seeds in the ground and most often, things grow. It's expected that there'll be a harvest. Faith. A farmer has more faith than anybody else. It's one of the most dependable industries. So, we take a look in the Medrish that we referenced earlier. The Medrash, Rabbe and Parshas Nasseri the Medesh says, expounding a totally different verse, a verse from the book of Psalms. Torah Tashem Tamima. King David says in the 19th Psalm that the Torah of God is perfect. Meshivat nofesh. It's restorative of one's soul. Eidot Tashem. It's eidut, it's testimony of God. So the Medrash, and we don't, again, we don't have the Yerushalmi. The Medrash says, Eidut, testimonies. Zesse de This is the order of Zraim. Why? Shaoda Maimin, Bekhaya of a person believes in the life of the universe. Vizareh, any plants. The H. Yosef in his commentary says, Who is the life of the universe? Zakadish Baruch. God is called Kheoilamim. Why is he called a life? Because he gives life and sustenance to the Olam Kulo. And people plant? Ah, he says. When people plant, what do they see? who When you put something in the ground, you're actually destroying it. You're causing its decomposition. Sharei, the seeds rot, spoil, and disintegrate. But a person hopes and he has faith. Hashem will give a harvest, a yield. And this will be blessed. And I'm like, I don't get this. I don't understand. Like, why would Rebbein B'chayi use the, the paradigm of agriculture? What do you mean faith like potatoes? You, you could say that about any industry. But he, he zeroes in on the, on the, on the, on the gardening, on the, on the farming. He talks about all these different levels of agriculture. You could say the same thing about any vocation. A person makes a product. He thinks that there's going to be a tremendous demand. And all of a sudden, everything changes on him. It's never happened to anybody. A person made a product. All of a sudden, there's a scarcity. And he's, it's flying off the shelves. He's doing fantastic. It's never happened to anybody. Most people will tell you that farming is more dependable, not less. It's one of the only industries that was entirely untouched by this two-year grind down of cold, cold COVID. People still farmed. Thank God we still had food. Where's the faith? So really, really, this bothered me very much. I mean, the Iyam has a nice, a nice homily on it, but that's not what Rebbeinu Bechayah is talking about in Shahr Bitochen. He's not giving us a homily. He's telling us, no, no, this is literal. So this, my dear friends, is the answer. The faith farming is the Jewish way to look at farming. It's not the worldly, the non-Jewish. There's a Jewish way of farming. It used to be our gross national product at Israel, but there's a Jewish way. And the Rebbe explained, shed extraordinary light on this. It's a, in the first volume of the Rebbe's edited talks, gathered talks, Lekutusichus. There's a beautiful rumination on Purim. And I'm going to give you the gist of it because we're running out of time. Rebbe says the says the holiday of Purim celebrates the miracle of salvation. Hashem saved the Jewish people from a decree of annihilation and genocide. Now many people mistakenly think that Persia was like Germany, 1935. It's not true. The Rebbe says that period was the most wonderful period in any exile. Jewish people were prominent, well-represented in all areas of commerce. For all we know, maybe even the arts and entertainment, that wasn't such a big thing once upon a time. Academia, we were well-represented. Our chief rabbi, our rebbe, was a parliamentarian. And it wasn't a democracy. He was selected to be in the parliament. The queen was Jewish. Never in history, before or after, has a reigning sovereign been Jewish outside of Israel. The queen was Jewish. Ahasuerus was the most powerful monarch of his time. He had a global empire. should have been, naturally speaking, the greatest time for the Jewish people. Never more secure. Much like the time we live in today. Or used to live in. What happened? What happened? What happened was that a prime minister named Haman set in motion something that spelled utter doom and gloom, the kind of destruction which is unprecedented and never replicated the entire Jewish people, to be wiped out in one day. Typically, during the periods of exile, we have lived in different places. So when Jewish people were persecuted in Eastern Europe, there were Jewish communities flourishing in the United States, for example. Very small community in Canada. South America. The Jewish community in Havana was booming. Some people managed to escape. Tragically, so many didn't. Here, the Jewish people were all living in the same 127 United States of Persia. There was nowhere else. We don't know of a Jewish community extant outside of the sphere of monarchical influence of Achashverosh. What happened? And the Rebbe said it's not natural. This is an unnatural thing. It came because they relied on nature. They said, we have to go to Ahasuerus' party. This is illustrated in a much later talk, and I spoke about it in the early episodes in Shara Abba The Rebbe says, if you think about it, the message is that we, the Jewish people, our destiny, our future, our well-being, our safety, our security, has nothing to do with the predictable, the trajectory of nature. How about our salvation? The first thing they did wasn't begin to burn the phone lines. First they prayed and they fasted. Esther too. It's a subject for another day. Why would she have fasted? She's putting herself in danger. She fasted. They fasted. She fasted. Only when everybody did chuva did she set in motion the series of events which ultimately led to a total turnabout. I invite you to watch uh, the Talmudish of the last couple of weeks if you want to have a better idea of understanding how much betochen Esther had and how she made every possible effort. In the thrust of this particular talk, the Rebbe is pointing out that we the Jewish people are not a natural people. In fact, nature has got nothing on us. Everything about us is paranormal, beyond nature. Our eternity comes from Hashem. And he says, this is the meaning of that statement of our sages. He plants, and he believes. What kind of statement is that? What kind of faith? He's a farmer, he's planting. Faith like potatoes? Potatoes. You put the seeds in the ground, the seeds grow. The Rebbe says atheists are also farmers. Every farmer is, a, is 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 religious. Every farmer is a man, a woman of faith. there's plenty of people, atheists in and And they're also farmers. Successful farmers. This is the It's the most natural of things. You put a seed in the ground, you plant, you water, you take care, it grows. As menzeit, you plant, it, it grows. So what does it mean? The Rebbe says that the pshaterfun is, the understanding of this, this is found, by the way, in Lekut Tzichus, volume 1, page 215, onto page 216, I'm reading page 216 now. What is a yidzemuna? What is the meaning of, of farming as a faith paradigm? That even when we're talking about planting. He says that's nothing to do with faith. I don't need to be trusting in Hashem so that my farm should be successful. So that I should have a harvest, so that I should be able to to harvest the produce, the yield. What do you mean? I plant it; it grows. Er alleen zet. He sees the farmer himself, the farmer of faith. How ich be hazen of us? Have n clown it zutan mit people who have nothing to do, so to speak, with God. Waks der zria. They plant it; it grows. Von des wegen weist er. He knows, as er als id, that as a yid is anders from the ganze Welt. He says, I am a Jewish farmer, and as a Jewish farmer, my farming is different. Just as the plurality of the Jewish people. So too, it is also with regard to an individual. I share this to you, with you many times. It's a, it's a direct statement that Maimonides makes in him, actually. And Ayyid is nit unter The Rebbe says this translates into the idea of our existence is miraculous. And just as our existence is miraculous as a nation, our existence is miraculous individually as well. In the and that's why he knows. When everybody else's farm is growing because they planted, that by him it will grow nor through from his emunah and from his trust in Hashem that's the meaning of z'ereya umaymin b'chayr alone. it's the Jewish way and so Rebbeinu B'chaya uses the paradigm in which it's so obvious you have to do something things never grow if you don't plant first and yet we're like in a partnership with Hashem where we do our part invest ourselves fully, and then rely on Hashem. Because even the farmer, whose trajectory of growth is so predictable, has to trust in Hashem first and foremost. And that makes all the difference. And because our sages spoke of this with regard to farming, it's natural for Rabbi B'chaia to use this example. He uses not the most natural expression of faith as many mistakenly, misguidedly think. They say, oh, he uses farming because farming is a faith paradigm. Wrong. It's a natural paradigm. He uses it because a Yid farms differently. And when Hashem in his, through his Navi, wants to tell us about farming, he says, emunascha. edut. Talks about trust. He talks about, he talks about testimony. He talks about faith, and so it's very clear that we need to do everything we possibly can. And at the same time, Zaydeya, plant, do everything you can to work the ground, Umaymin, and then you place your trust in Hashem Yisburich, and that is the secret of our success. To be continued Hashem, next week with attitude of gratitude for how we're supposed to view the success that comes our way. I want to thank all of you for joining. It's an honor and a privilege to be able to teach you Torah. And I invite you to continue to participate in our Torah studies. Please do me a favor, like, share. And again, I'm asking you, please be so kind as to subscribe and share this with your neighbors and friends youtube.com forward slash Rabbi Mendel Kaplan. Let's build a subscription and let's get messages of faith and trust, messages of uplifting spirituality and Yiddishkeit out there because that's how we can actually change the world and hasten the arrival of Mashiach. Be'mheira obi no speedily and in our days, amen. Thanks again for joining. Have a beautiful day.